0: This is The Guardian. It was a summer of wake-up calls. A fierce heat wave is gripping parts of Europe with temperatures reaching more than 40
1: degrees Celsius. Tonight, after a summer of devastating storms, ferocious wildfires and scorching heat... Greece is facing a war with climate change. It's gobsmackingly bananas, says one leading scientist, responding to global temperatures hitting new records in September.
0: And they keep coming. People in parts of eastern Scotland are preparing for what's been described as an unprecedented weather event as Storm Babette moves in. Now, a new study offers a glimpse of another extreme event in our future ice melting and the inevitable sea level rise.
1: It doesn't matter now, unfortunately, what we do. We can have the most stringent, most hard-to-believe level of carbon cuts and keep global heating below 1.5 degrees, and it doesn't make any difference.
0: So today we're hearing from Environment Editor Damien Carrington about the fate of our polar ice caps. What it's like to write about the environment today – And the legacy of legendary Guardian journalist John Vidal. I'm Madeleine Finlay and this is Science Weekly. Damien, we're just over a month from COP28 and you've written about a pretty startling new report from the British Antarctic Survey looking at melting ice in Antarctica – First of all, tell me a bit more about what they were investigating...
1: So the melting of ice is obviously one of the biggest impacts of climate change, one of the most obvious. If you look at sea level rise, it just goes straight up like a staircase uh, on the graphs. And um, the biggest contributors to that are thermal expansion of water, which is pretty straightforward, but most importantly, the melting of ice caps, glaciers to some degree as well, but the ice cap in Greenland and, of course, in Antarctica. So this new study looks at West Antarctica, which contains enough ice to raise sea levels by about five metres, which, as you can imagine, would be fairly catastrophic given that so many big cities are by the coast and also I think more than a third of the global population lives near to the coast. And in this study they were looking forward to try and work out what was going to happen this century in that region.
0: And how long have we been aware that we're losing our polar ice and that the West Antarctic sheet is melting and shrinking?
1: You know some of the best data has come since the satellite era so that's um, sort of the late 70s And we've known that certainly Greenland's been losing trillions of tonnes of ice. Antarctica has been more difficult in that it's much colder anyway. And so the signal of uh, the climate crisis, of global heating, has been less obvious there. But certainly in the last, say, 15 years, people have got really worried about the West Antarctic ice sheet. And in fact, quite a number of people think that we may already have passed the tipping point, which condemns the West Antarctic ice sheet to collapse.
0: So we've known for a while that the West Antarctic ice is in trouble. But a report published yesterday sounded the alarm even further. So what did it say?
1: In uh, Western Antarctica, they were looking in this study specifically at the Amazon Sea, which is an important uh, place, and uh, they were looking at, in particular, how warming seawater melts the sea ice shelves, because that's an important element of this whole story. Now, the listeners, if they're paying attention, might think, well, if you melt a sea ice shelf, you're not raising sea level, are you? And that's absolutely true, because the ice and then the water is already in the sea the reason the sea ice shelves are really important is because they're what called buttresses so they hold back the ice which is on the land so you can imagine you know the ice sheets trying to flow down towards the sea like the frozen river such as uh, glaciers are but if you've got this enormous block of uh, sea ice floating there they can't flow down into the ocean and therefore if you start melting away these sea ice shelves then you take away that buttressing effect Um, and they have found that For the 21st century, the rate of melting will be three times what it was in the 20th century. It's going to triple in speed.
0: So the researchers found that this ice sheet is going to melt three times as fast this century in comparison to the previous century – But they also looked at whether our actions could have any impact. What did they conclude?
1: The most important thing, I think, about the study was um, they were looking at what happens in different so-called emission scenarios. So do we go hell for leather and cut carbon all over the place and meet the Paris climate goal of one and a half degrees? Do we kind of go easy and it's a middle path? Or do we not care and emissions go through the roof? And the shocking thing about this new study is it doesn't really matter what they found was that in terms of the melting of these sea ice shelves in Antarctica and therefore the uh, flow of land ice into the sea and the rising of sea levels, it doesn't really make any difference what we do. As the researcher said to me, we've basically lost control of the West Antarctic ice sheet.
0: You said that This particular ice sheet, if it completely melted, would contribute five metres to sea level rise across the next few centuries or so. But how does that sit in the context of the rest of the planet's ice and what we should be expecting?
1: In a way, the small piece of good news that comes out of this is that in contrast to West Antarctica, East Antarctica does seem to be salvageable, if you like, in terms of uh, what Humans do around um, emissions. And that has 10 times more ice. If uh, global heating goes off the charts and uh, we lose East Antarctica as well, that's 50 meters, which is kind of an Armageddon type scenario. I mean, just to put a bit of context on the rest of it. So, this century, there's a pretty big range of estimates in terms of what we expect in sea level rise. Around a meter seems to be what's uh, most likely. But, you know, sea level rise is certainly much longer term than a lot of the other impacts of climate change. But when you think about how how uh, settled humanity is in coastal regions, that's, that's why it really matters.
0: As you say, we are a coastal animal, we like to live by the water. So did the authors of the study mention the impact that this could have and what, if anything, could be done?
1: So, I mean, the study looks at the uh, the scientific side of it, but the authors are saying that it it, it, it's just really clear example here of where adaptation is absolutely the first priority, rather than just trying to cut the carbon emissions, which they call mitigation. That either means building walls around you know coastal cities, flood defences, which is expensive and difficult to do, or moving people. That's happened on a small scale in some parts of the world already, but we're talking about millions, potentially billions of people. So we're looking at something which uh, really could change the map of the world.
0: Damien, the rapid melting that this study is predicting will happen, as you say, whether or not the world meets this ambitious Paris Agreement target of keeping global heating below 1.5 degrees C, which was agreed at COP21. We are nowhere near on track for that at the moment. So what are your thoughts going into COP28 in UAE next month?
1: I suppose in a way it feels a little bit like Groundhog Day. You know, I've been to quite a few of these now. And uh, the one thing I always look at every year is what's happened to global carbon emissions. And apart from this little blip with COVID, they keep going up and they're likely to go up again. To me, that seems like the sort of fundamental measure of success or not. That's not to say that um, things haven't happened. So, you know, a few years ago, probably before Paris and COP21, we were probably on target for, you know, four degrees, which is a real Armageddon scenario. Whereas now it looks like 2.6 if everyone keeps their promises. But that's still a very long way from 1.5. And, you know, as we've seen this year, all around the world, actually, the extreme weather that global heating is bringing is um, pretty extreme at not even 1.5 degrees so far.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, as environment editor, this summer I've been reading all your articles, you've written other stories which really should get the world to sit up and pay attention. You've written about the fact that the Earth is well outside the safe operating space for humans. We're exceeding these planetary boundaries. That scientists are saying what's happening is gobsmackingly bananas. And that the climate crisis is costing $16 million an hour in extreme weather damage. I mean, these are huge red flags. There are, of course, some good news stories in the mix as well, but I wonder, does it get any less shocking writing these stories and you know covering the damage that we're causing to this planet and its inhabitants?
1: I think in some ways it becomes more shocking in a way because you know I've been doing this job fifteen years, I think, and um when I started, we really were looking forward to stuff that was going to happen and to be clear, scientists have been extremely good at projecting what's going to happen. Now it's happening, and that's the shocking bit. It's it's become a reality. The climate crisis is here and now and only going to get worse. Um, it can be pretty depressing, beats sometimes here in the office, they sometimes laugh about uh, you know us being the four horsemen of the apocalypse in terms of uh, the environment team. But, you know, let's say there has been climate change action taken. We have all the technology that we need, really, to solve this problem. Um, and so, you know, I keep ploughing this furrow and hoping that uh, it makes a difference.
0: And speaking of a career spent raising awareness about the environment, at the end of last week, we heard the sad news about the death of John Vidal, The Guardian's pioneering environment editor for 27 years. He was, I think, legendary at The Guardian. So first of all, can you give us a sense of him as a person and as a colleague?
1: He was hilarious. He was enormous fun, probably the most energetic and enthusiastic person I've ever come across. He had a kind of incredible zeal for life, for fun, for friendship, but also for his work as well.
0: Tell me a little bit as well about his work, because I know he went to some pretty extreme lengths to get a story.
1: He did. John was unconventional, we'll put it that way, irreverent, iconoclastic, all of these words. But underpinning it all was this incredible passion, and in particular for the underdog, for social justice. He was really motivated to travel all over the world in difficult circumstances, to dangerous places, because he really cared that people without power, without uh, agency, were suffering through no fault of their own, and he really wanted to bear witness to them. This, underneath me, is the Trans-Niger pipeline. The great 24-inch artery of oil which leads from the oil fields here out to the terminal at Bonny down the river. It's not protected. You can see, look, there is, it's right under my feet. If I jumped hard enough on it, I'd probably break it myself. This pipeline provides nothing for these communities. They get nothing. They get none of the oil from it. They get none of the money from it. As you say, he, he didn't really mind uh, kind of ripping up the rule book uh, UK listeners will certainly remember that um, in the 90s, there were a lot of protests against road building, Newbury bypass in particular. And to see the other side of that, he pretends to be French and got a job as a uh, security guard and wrote a brilliant story in terms of, uh, you know, what was happening from the other side and actually how uh, horrible the security guards were being to the protesters.
0: I think that story really gives a sense of his character and... John was writing about the environment at a point where the rest of us were just waking up to what's happening. How influential was his journalism at the time?
1: Oh, incredibly! He, you know, he was a pioneer despite having got that very sad news of his um, passing on Thursday, one of the sort of joys I had in the day following was um, collecting all these tributes to him from uh, basically anyone who was anybody um, in terms of uh, environment over that period that you mentioned, you know, since the late 80s or even earlier. And every single one of them said, you know, John was a pioneer. He was there. He was in the Arctic. He was in the Amazon before anybody else. Uh, He was, you know, banging the drum very loudly, as only John could do uh, for this when it wasn't fashionable. You know, one of the most important things, and again, this is pointed out by a guy called Tom Burke, former head of Friends of the Earth, amongst other things, is that John was perhaps the first person to really link environmental problems with development or with poverty and social injustice and that's become kind of commonplace now uh, and i think he had a role in helping to make it that way he was a brilliant writer as well actually we shouldn't forget that he was an incredible uh, gifted writer so you know john just did those hard yards for so many years uh, with incredible passion good grace and as i say he was just tremendous fun around and it just feels like a really bright light has gone out you know
0: and I'd really encourage our listeners to go and read that lovely obituary that you've written for him, as well as a selection of John's articles that have been compiled, which we've put a link to on the podcast webpage. But, Damien, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about John.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks again to Damien Carrington. Journalists here at The Guardian are continuing John's pioneering legacy. Biodiversity reporter Patrick Greenfield and team recently won a Climate Journalism Award for their investigations, revealing that more than 99% of rainforest carbon offsets by the biggest offset certifier, Vera, were worthless. A big congratulations to them. Now, before you go, you need to know about Guardian Jobs, our job platform that connects you with like-minded people to build rewarding careers. Flexibility, values, salary. Find a workplace that ticks all of your boxes. With high-quality roles in sustainability, government, social care, charity and education, you're going to be spoilt for choice. So search for Guardian Jobs to find your next role and that's all for today this episode was produced by me madeline finley it was sound designed by joel cox and the executive producer is ellie Bury. we'll be back on thursday with a journey into white holes with physicist carlo Ravelli. see you then